Welcome to the PA is in the show created by PAs for PAs where codependency with your supervising physician is a thing of the past. Optimal team practice is the future and physician associate has taken the place of physician assistant as the professional title of choice. I'm Tracy Bingaman and I'm obsessed with redefining what success as a PA looks like and what it feels like. Here you'll find the mindset shifts, systems, and processes I use to escape healthcare burnout and integrate my work into my life. Work-life balance is a myth and an integrated life where you thrive professionally, not a balancing act, is the goal here. My mission is to help you to grow into a unicorn PA who loves their job, has abundant energy, time to spare, and work-optional financial freedom. The PA is in. Welcome back to another episode of The PA Is In. Today, we're going to dive into the world of BMT, or bone marrow transplant, with our guest, Andrea Gomez. Andrea has been a PA for over 10 years, and she specializes in bone marrow transplant, malignant hematology, and immunotherapy. She has lived and worked all over the country and will share with us her journey of getting into this field of bone marrow transplant. And we're also going to talk about inclusivity and what you can find when you take an adventure and take a chance in your life. I am so excited to share this episode with with you. Without further ado, here she is, Andrew Gomez. We interrupt this broadcast with a very important announcement. You are not making enough money. Your practice and your physician do not understand the value you are adding to their patients, and therefore, you aren't earning what you're worth. If in the past your requests for a raise have been met with one single word, no. If you're working more hours than ever and seeing more patients, but you're not making any more money and you're feeling pissed about it. If you feel like you've hit the ceiling of your income band, this guide is for you. I've compiled the five most costly and most common mistakes that PAs make when asking for a raise, and I've told you how to avoid them and what to do instead. Download your free guide at tracybingaman.com slash mistakes. Well, Andrea, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Hi, Tracy. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started. Sure. My name is Andrea Gomez. I grew up in the Detroit, Michigan area, went to school, PA school in Detroit, and uh, I've lived all over the country with my wife. My wife works in radio for a number of years now, and we were traveling for her her jobs around the country, but now it's my turn. So we're out here in Seattle, Washington, and we're we're putting down roots here. We really like it, so we plan to stay. What a cool intro and an exciting thing to be sort of going all over in search of things that give you and your wife fulfillment. But speaking of career trajectory, I would love to hear about yours as a PA and how you ultimately ended up working in the specialty of malignant hematology and bone marrow. So I I graduated from the University of Detroit Mercy in 2012, and my first job out of school was at Mount Sinai in New York City. I was a hospitalist there. I spent two years doing that. And as part of that rotation, we would work one day or one shift a week in the malignant heme inpatient uh, department. I found it very fascinating. There was so much to know and so much to learn about. Um, And one day the attending physician, he came up to me and he said, 
hey, Andrea, we're looking to hire somebody, a PA or an NP in bone marrow transplant. Would you happen to know how we go about finding somebody? And I said, well, you know, word of mouth is really the best way. And then I walked away and I thought later, duh, why not me? <laughs> because I had an interest. So I, I later emailed him and uh, within a week I had an interview with the department head and uh, just transitioned right over into BMT at Mount Sinai. Soon after that, my wife and I decided to move back to Texas, where she's from, uh, to be closer to her family because her, her grandparents were getting older. Her mom had cancer and survived it. And so we thought it was time to get back to, to her family side. So we went to Texas. I spent some time in inpatient, outpatient, um, I was working for Texas Oncology, mainly doing outpatient work. I was I, I saw patients that had malignant hematology uh, illnesses, but I also saw solid tumors. But I always had that craving, that yearn to go back to bone marrow transplant. And just at that time, there was no positions available. So I, I worked there a couple of years when all of a sudden, ding, I get an email that says this hospital in San Antonio was hiring for BMT. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is it. So. I, I transitioned over there and I, I was working both inpatient and outpatient. So I got to see the complete aspect of BMT. Um, and then from there, uh, I decided, you know, I want a little something more. So I talked to my wife about traveling. I heard of this traveling physician assistant position and I kept getting these emails and I thought, you know, it's time. Let's do this. So a recruiter reached out to me and said, we have a position I think you'd be great for. It's in Dallas, Texas. It's bone marrow transplant. Now, in BMT, it's a small world. There's usually not a whole lot of positions that are open. So I thought, you know what? This is my opportunity to travel, to see a different part of Texas. Let's do this. And I took the position right at the beginning of the pandemic. So I went up to Dallas. They flew me up there uh, from San Antonio to Dallas. It's like an hour and a half plane ride. I got to fly. The first flight, there were 10 people on the flight. The second flight, there was me, just me. And after that, that's when the pandemic really hit. And they said, no more flying. We'll give you a car. So I would travel every week to Dallas, five hours one way, um, and spend four days there to work in their bone marrow uh, transplant department. And then from there, that contract was ending. And uh, another recruiter reached out to me and said, we have a position in Seattle. And I always told my wife, I would never, ever live in Seattle. It's too cold. It's too dreary. It's no, that is a depressing city. No way, no way. Well, her best friend lives in Seattle and has for the past 25 years. So we thought, okay, well, let's go check it out. Let's go for six months. My contract's only six months. We'll go say hi and hang out with a friend and have fun. Well, our kids really uh, came to us and, and said some really neat things uh, such as, hey, mom, there's a sign in the cafeteria that says all are welcome. And it listed all different types of groups of people. It's all inclusive. And then another time my son said, you know what? We had a survey today in school and it asked our preferences. And I said, really? And they said, we would never get asked this in Texas. Never. And, you know, thinking about that we wouldn't want to go back to to something that is so non-inclusive. So it made us think, you know, this is a really great place to raise kids. And yes, it is dark and dreary in the, in the wintertime, but everybody kept saying, wait till spring, wait till spring. 
And sure enough, it was absolutely gorgeous last year. The, the trees bloom all these flowers. It, it is warm. It does get warm here. <laughs> um, we were at the beach all summer. It was great. And so because of, you know, raising a family in such a all-inclusive type of city, we thought, let's let's put some roots down. Let's stay here. So we've decided to stay. And now I currently work at uh, University of Washington, Fred Hutch Cancer Center, work inpatient. I'm getting ready to go to the outpatient setting to check that out and get trained over there. And, you know, I just I I find that BMT is is where I need to be. This is my passion. I love I love learning about these diseases and the treatments. The treatments are always changing. That is so cool. And before we move on, because I do want you to share some of your knowledge about bone marrow transplant with us so that as practitioners, a lot of people that are listening to this podcast are actively practicing clinicians, like what we need to know about bone marrow transplant. I just want to take a moment to say like, that is so incredible that you took this chance and moved a really long way from New York to Texas, from Texas to Seattle. And that in doing that, you got to experience this whole new thing that you never would have known unless you had said, hey, Let's and moving is expensive and stressful oh, and you oh, know well, you know what my family my kids love road trips and so we thought of this as an adventure and none of us had driven out west before so we literally packed the car we had two cars we packed the cars up with just these you know plastic bins of what we would need and my wife drove one car with one kid and two dogs and I drove the other car with one kid and two cats and we headed out west and it was so neat. You know, we stopped in some small towns. We got to see Utah and the Rock Mountains. I've never seen that before. And it was stunning. It was gr- just gorgeous. Yeah. It's an important reminder that the world is a lot bigger than sometimes we make it, right? We we are, you know, formed by our experiences. And if you've never experienced something like that, you may say, hey, that's never for me because of a book I read one time that said it's rainy in the winter or this general impression about the weather somewhere. And that part of the beauty of this human existence is we get to be surprised by what we find when we try something out. And I'm so glad that you have found a culture and a region that really, it sort of embraces what I am assuming you are teaching your kids at home. And so when those external values of your community or even your work organization line up with yours, I think it's a lot easier to thrive as a family and as an individual in that situation. It really is. It's it is it's a great feeling to be a part of this community here, knowing that people are respected for no matter who you are, what you are, the color of your skin, who you call family. Everybody is respected here in Seattle. And it's it's such a breath of fresh air coming from where I've come from before. My wish is that that starts to be the norm everywhere, right? Wouldn't that be amazing if that was just everywhere that was true and all of the schools your kids could feel like that was true. Everyone is accepted and that's the end of the sentence that there is not if this or if that or but not if, you know. There's no conditions here. It's wonderful. That's so amazing. So bone marrow transplant, uh, you know, we are transplanting people that have lymphomas leukemias and there are way different kinds of lymphomas and leukemias i can't even begin to tell you how many Uh, multiple myeloma we even transplant germ cell tumors which is uh, testicular cancer um there are transplants uh stem cell and when i say transplants i'm talking about stem cells which is the blood um we do transplant some non-malignant 
disorders such as severe aplastic anemia and sickle cell anemia. Um, so those are what we usually see on the inpatient side when patients come in to get their bone marrow transplant. It's those type of diseases or illnesses that we see. So can you explain to me how the process works for both the donor and the recipient? Is it typically family? Like, what does that process look like when someone needs a transplant and who is usually the donor? So this process will usually start in the outpatient uh, oncologist's office. When a patient has a certain illness or disorder, um, the, there are typical illnesses that go to transplant. Now, it's based on a lot of it's based on the what we say the cytogenetics, the certain abnormalities, the genetics of the tumor cell that make a patient high risk or not. And if they're high risk, usually send them to transplant sooner rather than later. So what happens is, is that the patient with myeloma, let's say they will get their chemo through their regular oncologist. And then at some point they're sent to bone marrow transplant for a consult. Uh, what we do is we look over all of their paperwork, the the chemo they've had, the testing they've had done, and uh, determine if they're a candidate or not. Now, I will tell you out at Fred Hudge, we tend to transplant patients that usually wouldn't get transplanted in other places. Um, so we do see the sick of the sick out here. Um, so what happens is that usually we try to get patients into a remission before their transplant. Um, and then we do what's called um, can we get them ready for stem cell harvesting or their uh, uh, apheresis. So in adult patients, we typically use peripheral blood, whereas children, and I don't work with children, so I can't comment too much, but usually the childhood disorders, they use actual bone marrow from the hips. But we use peripheral blood. So a patient that's getting their own stem cells back, those are called autologous or autotransplants. And we try to get them in remission, and then they will take some shots called filgrastum. These are shots that increase the white blood cells in their in their system. They'll do that for about four or five days, and then we'll take a sample, send it to the lab, and if they are seeing a certain number of CD34 cells, which are the stem cells, then they're ready to, to transplant. There has to be a certain number, not transplant, but collect, sorry. Uh, they get a line placed in their neck uh, to collect these special stem cells. The patient will come in. They'll go on to a machine that looks like a uh, dialysis machine. This The technician will do, 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 punch in some numbers that will only collect the CD34 cells, which are stem cells, and it'll give back the rest of the blood to them. Um, it's collected in a bag, just like a blood transfusion. And then that bag of cells goes to a lab for processing, um, there is a preservative that's placed in the bag called DMSO, and that prevents the cells from lysing or breaking open during the cryopreservation part because these cells will be frozen to be used at a later time. Usually with a an auto transplant, the patient collects and then about a week later, they will come in inpatient, be admitted to the hospital. They will get what's called high dose chemotherapy. And with myeloma, that, that chemo is usually melphalan, 200 milligrams per meter squared. So it's a really high dose that will completely wipe out their bone marrow. Um, it wipes out their good cells, too. Not only the microscopic 
plasma cells or malignant cells, but it wipes out their good cells too. So they're in the hospital, um, usually an auto transplant anywhere from two to three weeks. And what happens is the high dose chemo doesn't cause problems right away. It's about a week later, a couple days after they get their stem cells back is when we start seeing side effects of chemo, which can be nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Malphalan can cause mouth sores, which can affect the gut too. Um, and then once they get their stem cells, about 10 to 14 days later, their, their white blood cells start to come back. And once their white cells are, uh, their neutrophils are over 500, we get them ready to go home. Um, as long as they're eating, drinking, can hold food down and can get around safely. Now, an aloe transplant's a little bit different because they're typically getting cells from a different person. And so there's a whole set of complications that we have to watch out for, specifically something called graft-versus-host disease. An aloe transplant or an allogenic stem cell transplant, that's cells from somebody else. And that could be somebody that you're related to. And that's usually where we start um, the process is we look to brothers and sisters, usually first, um, and children and parents. Um, the parents and the children usually match halfway. So those are called a haplotransplant. That means half match, which have been studies have shown that a haplotransplant is about comparable to an um, unrelated, unrelated donor. So, you know, there can be related transplant, unrelated, half match. Um, and then you, you can also read in, in some of the studies that twins were done early on, but we don't typically do that much anymore. I have never seen it in my 10-year career. Yeah, so aloe transplants, a little bit different. Those cells come from somebody else. And so these patients get put on immunosuppression medications such as tacrolimus, serolimus, mycophenolate, which is also called MMF. Um, they're usually in the hospital for three to four weeks. Um, because the cells tend to take a little bit longer to come back. Their neutrophils um, reaching the, the goal of 500 usually take a little bit longer. Um, and we once the cells start coming back, that's when we have to watch for graft-versus-host disease. Okay. All right. Once things start to kick in and they start to see real like growth. Got it. And there's a major difference between acute GVH and chronic GVH. So um, acute usually happens within the first 100 days of transplant. Uh, the chronic happens after 100 days, and it looks different. The skin GVH looks different. Um, the patients can get scleroderma, um, eye ocular GVH. Um, it, it just looks a lot different than acute. And so these patients are obviously monitored long-term, whether by you or their primary hematologist like home, if they've traveled to you. So if someone is listening and they're saying, hey, so these people, you know, someone has this, their family all gets tested. They have a parent or a child that's a half match. There could arguably be someone out there who is that kind of match for someone who either doesn't have family who is able or healthy enough to donate. If someone feels called to like, hey, I could be a donor, I could donate. How do we, what does that look like? How do we get registered? What do we need to know about becoming a bone? Yes, the, the organization called Be The Match is an excellent source for you to look up. It's an easy process to get registered. Um, my wife and I actually registered because we were a part of the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. We, we used to do team and training and run marathons, half marathons and triathlons, and they happened to be at one of our practices. So all they did was, swabbed our cheek. 
We filled out a form with our name, you know, birthday and that. And then we were in the registry. So that means that you could be called upon to be a donor if somebody out there had a hematologic malignancy and needed a transplant. The physician's office, they'll go in, they have special coordinators, they'll go into this registry and they'll type in your information, the donors inf or the patient's information, and it'll bring up a list of people that match. Um, and so that's where you would come in. If you are picked as a donor, you would go in to get additional blood work done to make sure that because there's some more testing, in-depth testing that needs to happen before you are considered a, a full match. You'll get some blood work. Then you'll have to see the um, uh, a physician to get uh, a physical exam. Make sure you're in good health. You don't have any illnesses, chronic illnesses that might prevent you from being the donor or infections. Um, so you'll get a physical exam. You'll get blood work. And then the process itself to become a donor, if you are chosen, you will be doing the same thing that, uh, you know, an auto transplant would do. You would take that we would give you a shot called filgrastum or GCSF, growth stimulating factor shot for about four or five days. You'll be monitored every day in the clinic. Um, you will get a blood test to see how many stem cells approximately, how many are in your bloodstream. And if you're hit a certain point, you get one more shot called plerixifor, which pushes them out into your periphery. You'll go on that machine that looks like a dialysis machine. It'll pull off all the CD34 stem cells that collect in a bag, just like a blood transfusion. And then when you're done collecting, some patients collect over one day. Sometimes it takes two days. Um, once you're done, you'll have this line, special line removed. Um, and within a couple of days, you're back to doing normal activities. Um, so being a donor really doesn't hurt you. It really doesn't affect your life too much. It's just a few days of taking a shot, going on a machine to have your stem cells collected, and then you're done. Um, now, in the future, you might be called back because if this patient, um, let's say that they lose their graft and they need more cells to boost them, we call that a DLI or donor lymphocyte infusion. You might be called back to donate again to help that specific patient. So um, yeah, it's it's a fairly simple process, though. I feel like that's a lot less involved than I was anticipating that you would say. Like I, even as a professional who's worked in healthcare, I thought you have to be even no compromise. They have to biopsy your pelvis, like all of these. I don't know. I thought it was just a lot more involved. Yeah, it's really just we we collect we we do in the adult world we do peripheral blood stem cell transplants, and so when. Those patients get that bag of cells from themselves or from a different um, patient. They're just, you know, pushed right through. Okay, let me explain the process. <laughs> so in an auto transplant, remember, those cells are frozen. And because of the pandemic, our allo transplants are also frozen. Prior to the pandemic, the allo transplants, they were fresh cells flown from even Europe. And okay, so I asking, I mean, you have to be local to this you person. You don't have to okay. be local. Anybody can join this registry. And I will say a lot of times we do get stem cell donors from Europe. And so the timing of chemotherapy and everything has to be spot on. And so but now because of the pandemic, a lot of almost all cells are, are cryopreserved or frozen. So when the patient comes in, they get their high dose chemo. Then it's stem cell transplant day. It happens right in their room. 
They're not going to a special procedure room or anything. It's right in their hospital bed. Um, the cells are frozen. So the technician from the lab um, processing plant comes. They put it in a water bath. So they warm the cells up gently. Um, everything starts melting in there. The DMSO, remember, is in there to preserve those cells so they don't lice. Um, the patient, um, the nurse usually does the infusion and they'll draw from the bag, they'll draw them up into a big syringe, hook up the syringe to the uh, Hickman line or port and just slowly infuse them. Um, now, the DMSO can cause some uh, side effects such as hypertension or hypotension. It can cause hypoxia. Um, but what we can do to help with that is just push the cells a little slower because they have to get these cells. We can't just stop and say, oh, you can't tolerate it. No, they have to get these cells because without these cells, they will die. They Most don't have any. Because they have no cells. We we gave them such high dose chemo. We wiped their bone marrow out. So their bone marrow will not produce any more cells without this stem cell rescue. So they get the cells and then the cells make it make their way to the bone marrow. They set up shop, start kicking out brand new cells. Um, so there's a period of time that patients are immunocompromised, severely immunocompromised. And that's why they're in the hospital, because they have no white blood cells to fight infection. So any fever, we've got to act upon it right away and make sure that they're treated for neutropenic fever. Right. And so these people are on neutropenic precautions, like you can't bring them flowers or bring your snotty kid or all yeah, that. No, 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 they are on neutropenic precautions. So they have to, you know, over the years, uh, we've gotten away from doing the neutropenic diet, actually. Um, so but yes, you're right. No fresh plants because and people want to know why. The reason is because mold lives in the dirt. And these patients are so susceptible to getting any infection. If that if they inhale those mold spores, well, guess what? Now they have a fungal pneumonia, which is very hard to treat. So no fresh plants. Um, you can bring plastic ones or um, sometimes people bring balloons in for them. No snotty kids. Actually, kids under, I think it's 12, are not even allowed on our floor, period. Because they harbor a lot of germs that our patients can't fight. So... We're not discriminating against kids. It's just that, you know, you tend to, they tend to carry germs. So that's all. Yeah. So, and then these patients, are they on, um, like if they had a kidney transplant, they would be on like anti-rejection meds for the rest of their life. Is that true for someone who has had a bone marrow transplant as well? It is. Um, I wouldn't say for the rest of their life. Um, so what happens with the transplants? those are cells from somebody else, they do go on immunosuppression either, and it's all based on whatever regimen, conditioning regimen. Um, it could be tacrolimus, it could be serolimus, it could be mycophenolate, it could be methotrexate. Um, and so what happens is these patients will go on that and sometimes a combination of all of the above until about day 100. Day 100 is the special mark in transplant world. Um, if they have no signs of graft-versus-host disease, we start peeling back some of those immunosuppression meds, and eventually they can get, them, get off of them. However, if they have graft-versus-host disease, we've got to keep them on that. Sometimes we have to throw in steroids on top of it to suppress their immune system more because they've got some overactive donor T-cells that are attacking their body, and we've got to turn that, that system off. So, you know, it all depends if they get GVH or graft versus host, how long they're on the immunosuppression medicines for. Got it. So now you work somewhere where the sick of the sick, right? So people who either were too complicated, 
um, who couldn't get a transplant somewhere else because they just didn't have the capability to take care of them. So my question for you is, how do you take care of yourself while you are taking care of these patients? Because this is sick people, they're hospitalized for a long period of time. I think emotionally as a provider, that can feel really hard to navigate your own emotions as you're taking care of them. So what do you do to help you as you're navigating that as a provider? Well, you know, first things first, I I usually come home, you know, if I have a hard day, I'll talk to my my spouse, my wife about it. And she's really good at, you know, consoling me, I, I suppose you can say. Also, uh, work just sent out an email recently about joining. Um, it's like a group that can help you through some of these emotions that that take place and in, in looking deep in yourself. So I've joined that course that I'm taking once a week for six weeks. Um, you know, I try to spend as much time as I can with the family when I get home. I I try not to bring up work too much. Um, and then, you know, it is it's rough. It's hard. Um, we lose patients all the time. In fact, I, I just lost a patient last week and I have a, another patient that I've been caring for for the past month who is on hospice now. So it happens and it's hard. Um, I say really what I do is I come home and I talk to my wife about it and just get it out. You know, this was my day. It was really challenging. It was really difficult. And, you know, she kind of tells me that I'm doing the best I can. And that's really, I just spend time with my family. Yeah. I think part of what I really want to do with this platform is normalizing this is hard and I don't always know how to navigate like feeling after, you know, I took care of someone for weeks to months and now we transition them to comfort care or someone who came in. And for me, and I, I want to say this carefully because I don't want it to sound like some patients I don't care about as much, but in my practice, I have found and I've treated cancer patients surgically in the past when patients very much reflect me, either demographically or personality-wise, someone that I just can see myself in, I have had a harder time. Like we had a young mom one time who had just this terrible disease process and an unfortunate complication, was hospitalized for a long period of time. And she had a baby the exact age of one of my kids at the time when she was hospitalized. And I was taking care of her every day. So I'd see her spouse there with their baby. I would see, and then I would go home to my baby. And I really was like, wow, I took care of, you know, a hundred patients this week and was fine. I was, I was fine. I was coping. I was functioning. I was able to do all the things I needed to do. But this one got to me because I saw myself in her. And then I went down the garden path of like, well, that could what be if me. This was and me what and what I would I do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. There, I will say, yes, there are certain patients that I connect with deeper than others. And so when when things don't turn out the best for for that patient that I really connect with, it is much harder because I do the same thing. I, I think, oh, my gosh, what if this was me and how would I handle it? And what if I had cancer? And, you know, how would my kids handle this? And how would my spouse handle this? What would we be doing at this moment right now? I start going down the what if, what if, what if? And as we all know, if you do that, you can cause a, some severe anxiety in yourself. So I try not to go down that hole. But there are patients that I connect with really, really deeply. And it's, it is it is hard. And that's when I come home and I share those moments with my wife. And 
you know, we kind of um, talk about the things that we're blessed for. And, you know, we do talk about what if that happened to us and how we how we would handle it. And I think having those conversations, even just saying out loud, hey, I had this like weird series of thoughts where I got really worried about what we would do if X, Y, Z happened. Even saying it out loud and sharing it with one other person makes it a little less scary. Like it brings it out of the dark. It makes it so like even when you know this isn't super logical, right? I'm not super at risk for this and I know the signs so I would know if I had it. Sometimes you can talk yourself out of this fear or what if and saying, hey, it's just like saying to your kids, like if we had a fire, we'd go outside, we'd meet across the street, right? Like that's our plan. We're not, yes, we're not planning to have a fire, you know, like we're going to do everything in our power to prevent a fire. But if we had a fire, this is what we would do. And this is how we're prepared for that. And this is how I would want you to, to, you know, handle this or make this decision. I don't think we revisit those conversations enough. Just like generally in society, we think like, oh, if I have a will, that means I'm going to die. Or if I talk about what I want you to do, if I was terminally ill, that means something terrible is going to happen. Like we're all going to die of something someday. You know, I'll tell you, having that that power of attorney, the healthcare power of attorney and your advanced directive is so important. Even if you're young and healthy, you never know when your time will come. And it's so important. You know, I had I had a family last week and this this person did her advanced directive and medical power of attorney before her transplant. And so her husband knew exactly what she wanted. And she did unfortunately have complications and got very ill and was at the point of the end of her life. And, you know, I think that it's helpful for you to have this advanced directive so your partner knows what to do and you're not left with, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And you're in the moment like, oh, do everything, do everything. Well, what if your spouse didn't want everything, you know? So it's so important to have that advanced directive, medical power of attorney done when you're healthy. Think about this stuff because it's reality things happen. Yeah. And we don't want them to happen. But man, if they happen, you really want to be prepared. And that is a way of saying I love you to your spouse, to your person who's going to be making your decisions, to your parents, to your kids, to whoever would be really sad if something happened to you. A really great way to say to those people, I love you, is to get those things in order so that if and when something happens, they're not having to guess what they think that you might. Yeah. It's so important. And, you know, I think a lot of us don't, we put off those decisions till we have kids. And then we think about it once when our first kid is born, we make a will. Like you need to be revisiting those decisions every couple of years. You know, we had more kids. Are we still going to have these people, you know, be their guardian if something were to happen? And like, again, it's not like speaking, it makes it happen. It's no, you need it, it in writing. Scary. Yes. Yes. Yep. Exactly. So, you know, a bone marrow transplant, it's fascinating to me. I, I really enjoy learning everything that I can about these illnesses and the new treatments. There are new treatments coming. You know, FDA is approving new treatments left and right, which is very exciting for patients that, you know, otherwise never had a chance are are getting that opportunity to live longer now. It's just, it's It's such a great, great field. And I love learning everything I can about it. The patients are great, too. That is so cool. It sounds like your patients are very lucky to have you. I think a passionate provider who's willing to learn things is a much more effective provider than someone who thinks they know all of the things. 
Absolutely. I agree. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. If people want to contact you, if they have questions, if they just want to learn more or for you to send them resources about bone marrow transplant, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you or to be able to contact you? Sure. I am. I'm on LinkedIn, Andrea Gomez. You can look me up on LinkedIn. Feel free to shoot me in a private message. Um, if you want to email me, it's andreagomezpa at gmail.com. Go ahead. Feel free. Reach out to me. I'll, I'll, I'll answer to the best of my ability. Awesome. I think it is great to be able to break down the walls between different professions and even just within the PA profession, different specialties. Like if someone didn't even know that PAs worked in bone marrow transplant or didn't know exactly what it entailed, Having you be able to say like, hey, shoot me an email. I'll tell you what a day in the life. I'll answer your question. I'll tell you if I think that's a reasonable setup, whatever. It just, I think that saying, hey, I know about this. This is my experience. I'm willing to share it with you. It's such a value to the community to be able to say, I'm doing this well and we're figuring out how it works and you should too. It's a great, great service to the profession in general. So thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm here. I'm here to share my knowledge. Anybody have any questions? Just reach out to me. Awesome. Thank you so much again for sharing your time with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Tracy. One of the reasons that I love doing interviews on this show so much is that each time I feel like I get a peek in a window of a specific specialty and a certain PA's journey. So I hope that this episode has helped you to feel less stuck and more encouraged that if you don't love where you are, you could make a change and find something great. I hope that you learned something about bone marrow transplants, and I hope that you go back to your patients feeling reinvigorated to take good care of yourself and to take good care of them. Congratulations. You've just joined an awesome club. By listening to a full episode of The PA Is In, you are officially on the Unicorn PA team. Welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episode of the show. The life of your dreams exists on the other side of taking action. Keep making small shifts and keep getting better. Your life will improve, your career will soar, and you will have the confidence you need to create your own success. I will see you in the next episode. This PA is out.